A lot of baseball news got made while I was drinking mango daiquiris and Saskatchewan red eyes on the beaches of Punta Cana. I'll ask Nick and Ray about all the baseball news as opening weekend continues next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 8th. It's show number 13 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday news and comment edition for you. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols covers the National League, including San Diego acquiring Taylor Rogers and Sean Manaya. Jacob deGrom's latest injury. Another chance for Victor Robles. First base risk in the Cubs and Milwaukee, and more. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including A.J. Pollock landing in Chicago, Chris Paddock landing in Minnesota, Spencer Torkelson staying up in Detroit, Sean Manaya leaving Oakland, and more. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Detroit right-handed reliever Alex Lang. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about why I spent 70% of my fab in the first week on one player. It's another big Friday news and comment edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Opening weekend is underway. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday news and comment edition, our Market Watch player news reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League report, and leading off, it's our National League news and analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. How'd you enjoy your week off? I, I was all right. I'm I trying to keep up with baseball. Opening day uh, taking place just yesterday, in fact, uh, but. The week before, I wasn't here. I was down in the Dominican Republic uh, enjoying this salt and the sand and the beach and uh, all of that kind of stuff. And not baseball. The only baseball thing I had going on, Nick, was uh, on the bus down to the resort from the Punta Cana airport. I saw a guy walking along the side of the road with a Manny Machado Dominican Republic uh, League, the Winter League, I guess, uh, jersey. that looked uh, uh, pretty well worn, so I'm going to guess uh, it was back from when Manny was actually playing in those leagues. Uh, I don't know how long ago that was, but it was good to see uh, some... Uh, relationship to baseball during the trip that was about it for me though uh, the internet was pretty spotty it was pretty hard to keep track there's a lot of licensing agreements too so you go to you go online and you try to catch a game or try to catch a baseball related show and the thing comes up and says not licensed in your in your region so Uh-oh. they they know where you are and and they don't want to share with uh, people outside the uh, continental North America, I guess. Not sure, but I'm glad I'm back. And uh, certainly there was a lot of news going on while I was away. Uh, starting in San Diego, they made some pitching moves and they got uh, Taylor Rogers from the Twins. And we presume that uh, they're trying to shore up the bullpen there, but what's Taylor Rogers' role look like it's going to be? Yeah, they sent Chris Paddock and Emilio Pagan uh, to Minnesota, uh, getting back Taylor Rogers and Brent Rooker. And it looks like Taylor Rogers is going to close in San Diego. Uh, the word had come out, Taylor Rogers, 31% uh, strikeout minus walks, nine saves in 2021. Uh, they had already said before 
uh, right after they acquired him, that he would be the closer. Uh, they trained, traded Ranger Suarez, uh, tried Ranger Suarez uh, last night, Thursday night. Uh, zero innings pitched, uh, three batters, three home, three earned runs. Uh, I think the strikeout walk ratio got only four strikes and 15 pitches. Probably will not be trying Suarez again in a closing role anytime soon. So it looks like Taylor Rogers is the guy to grab at this point in San Diego. Um, there's still still to be some others in the pen. Pierce Johnson uh, could like be still be a versatile pen. Uh, they also got back Brent Rooker, corner outfielder Brent Rooker. He will start in the minors, waiting for his first opportunity in San Diego as a bench outfielder. Uh, so of course, things get uh, shifted around in the rotation with Paddock gone. Uh, Nick Martinez gets the first crack to the number five spot uh, as Mike Clevenger begins 2022 on the IL with knee soreness. Uh, waiting in the rings is the next man, uh, is newly resurgent Mackenzie Gore, who posted a 16-3 strikeout minus walk rate in 12 innings pitched this spring. Uh, and thus is noteworthy the confirmation of Uber prospect C.J. Abrams' roster spot. Uh, that's a shuffle the uh, San Diego playing time a lot at this point. Uh, left-handed Andy Abrams uh, wasn't in the lineup uh, last night against uh, Madison Bumgarner, but uh, Bob Melvin seems likely to ease him in slowly. And regardless of any experience, Abrams is up to play on most nights until he proves he can't. So he cuts into the early projected playing time of Haseon Kim, who now projects as a utility infielder off the bench. Abrams was also seen in right field at the end of spring training. Uh, and so anything uh, can and possibly will happen uh, once all that begins. Jock Thompson was on that story for Baseball HQ. Certainly an interesting aspect of the offseason I've been noticing is more and more teams seem to be looking at those guys who can play multiple positions, uh, kind of a trend that got started a year or two ago with Tampa Bay where they were sort of focusing on guys like that. And I'll talk with Ray a little later on about them trading away Austin Meadows to Detroit and getting back uh, – Isaac Paredes, who's another one of those guys who can play four or five different positions, has a little slap, has a little power. It seems to be the way of the future for a lot of major league teams to, to focus on those guys with multiple position eligibility, which has a reflection in fantasy baseball because more and more I know I and many others are doing the same thing. Yeah, it's very, very it's wonderful on your fantasy team when you get somebody who qualifies at a middle infield, corner infield, and the outfield, and then you can stick them in wherever they're needed, especially when they're hot. So. Certainly a lot of us in fantasy baseball are looking for the same thing. And doubly so in, in only leagues where the free agent pool for hitters is pretty thin and you don't want to be forced into the free agent pool and get a, a 17th outfielder who might only play uh, two at-bats a week or something like that. Uh, meanwhile, uh, also in San Diego, they acquired Sean Manaya from Oakland. That was a little while ago, but what's the upshot of the, of the Manaya acquisition for the rotation in San Diego? Uh, Manaya, well, Manaya moves uh, from the A's to uh, uh, to San Diego. Doesn't uh, no, we're not projecting many any uh, uh, pitch loss from Manaya as he as he moves from there. He doesn't lose that much in uh, home venue friendliness and gets a little more offensive and bullpen support than he had in Oakland. So he slots easily into the San Diego rotation, giving the Padres more starting pitcher depth, uh, leaving back uh, leaving uh, Nick Martinez as the number five pitcher. We just talked about that. Uh, and uh, Mike Clevenger uh, was bombed in his only spring outing uh, and will now start in the IL. That first spring outing for Mike Clevenger gave up eight runs, uh, three strikeouts, two walks, and one and two-thirds innings. So uh, he's going to be on the IL for a while, and then we'll need some time to get back into throwing shape. 
I have to say this certainly looks good for anybody who picked up Sean Manaya while he was still in Oakland, uh, as I did in one of my leagues. A uh, little bit worried, of course, about the possibility that he'd pitch there all year with uh, really not much offensive support and a bullpen in disarray, to be to be fair. But uh, in San Diego, Sean Manaya all of a sudden looks like he could be a very valuable uh, pitching asset for fantasy players. Yeah, he does indeed. I'd much rather have him in San Diego than Oakland as a fantasy as a fantasy manager, most certainly. In other West Division news, uh, Craig Kimbrell finally left uh, Chicago White Sox, and boy, the rich get richer, don't they, Nick? Uh, he goes to the L.A. Dodgers. I assume that Craig Kimbrell will immediately go into the closer role. Uh, that is, that's what the Dodgers are saying, is that uh, the uh, Kimbrell will be, will be the closer, uh, back in a familiar role where he excelled last year until the second half when he started scuffling, uh, at, once he became a setup man for Liam Hendricks in Chicago. Uh, 19, 19.0 swinging strike rate, uh, 186 BPV are still Pete Kimbrell. Uh, Blake Trinan, Trinan will, uh, will come in behind him and use uh, – Trinan can actually pick multiple innings and uh, really a great guy to have in your fantasy team. I had him last year and loved him. Lots of holes coming out of Trinan. Uh, they projected him perhaps as the closer this year, but with Kimbrell. Uh, ahead of him, Trinum will now swing into a more uh, a more familiar role. Uh, offensively, the lineup uh, suddenly looks uh, less right-handed batter uh, batters leaning with uh, uh, Andrew, Andrew Pollock gone, uh, and the left-handed hitting given Lux now projects a larger sign of playing time in left field and second base uh, with Chris Taylor uh, helping to share the roles in those in those spots. And we go back to that same theme, don't we, uh, Nick? Gavin Lux and Chris Taylor, another couple of guys who can move around the field as as needs warrant, uh, maybe play some matchups a little bit more for Dave Roberts down in L.A. This uh, this Dodgers team looks like it's loaded for uh, 2022. It does indeed. They really do look loaded. In Cincinnati, uh, they've been raising some eyebrows with their off-season maneuvering, which seems to be to jettison anybody making more than minimum wage. And uh, meanwhile... Speaking of making minimum wage, they did call up their ace pitching prospect, Hunter Green, and he's going to start the season on the big league team in the rotation. It looks like he will open the season as the fourth starter. Uh, They've had injuries to uh, veteran starters Louis Castillo and Mike Miner, so that's created multiple openings in the Cincinnati rotation to be filled by prospects. Green joins fellow rookie prospect left-handed pitcher Revere San Martin. Uh, who is the early favorite for the fifth starter spot. Um, so for at least for the season's first eight games, those two guys will be in the, uh, in the rotation. No fifth starter needed uh, until April 16th. At that point, Castillo could return. If Castillo is not ready to return by mid-April, then Nick Lodolo, who is not on Cincinnati's 40-man roster, seems likely to take the spot. Lodolo has actually outperformed Green during spring training. Um, Though the fact that Green is already on the 40-man roster, while Adola was not, is clearly favored Green at this point. Uh, Cincinnati has multiple non-roster players in camp who are likely to crack the opening day roster, leaving Adola kind of caught in a potential roster crunch. Uh, Green could be at risk of being uh, demoted to AAA for more seasoning when the veteran pitchers are healthy and ready to join the rotation. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I've seen Hunter Green over the last few days shoot up the ADPs. Uh, everybody's drafting him, uh, going for uh, good dollars in the auction format leagues. Uh, and yet Hunter Green is by no means assured of being in the in the big leagues as of May 1st even. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, it's one of those things where he's going to start there. And, and, and you know how this works. He, 
there, there, are, there are several possible um, scenarios here. He could come in and pitch tremendously the first couple of times when hitters are not very used to him, or he could actually, actually bomb uh, right away. And, uh, you know, who knows where he'll be on May 1st. So if he strikes everybody out and doesn't allow any earned runs, he'll probably stay in the rotation. That seems unlikely. Uh, big lead hitters have a way of, uh, of uh, getting to these young guys uh, very early. So uh, my guess is that Hunter Green spends some more time in the minor leagues this season. Earlier this year when uh, the drafts were just starting, there was a lot of discussion about where to properly slot Mets starter and ace Jacob deGrom because of injury concerns and injury risk. And it seemed to me, Nick, as I was watching the early drafts segue into the later drafts and people seem to be talking themselves into Jacob deGrom more and more and more and saying, you know, convincing themselves by saying, uh, these injury things are overblown and blah, blah, blah. Well, guess what? Jacob deGrom has a shoulder problem. He will start the year on the IL. And everybody who thought that it was safe to draft Jacob deGrom in the first round or early in the second round might be thinking twice today. Yeah, you know, it's one of those, it's one of those very strange things where you don't know exactly what to do when you're, when you're drafting. Uh, if there's a sliver of good news from his MRI on his shoulder, it appears that the MRI uh, showed that it was just a stress reaction reportedly that should heal with rest. Uh, so uh, he may, may come back in uh, four, six, eight weeks. Uh, we've made a substantial reduction in his innings pitch for the year. Uh, best case scenario could be back in action in June. With DeGrom out, main beneficiaries are likely to be Tyler McGill and David Peterson, both of whom have had runs in the Met rotation before. M McGill uh, started, I believe, the first game last night, had a 4.52 ERA over 90 innings in 2021, but his X-area was a half run better. BPV of 126, so uh, not a bad guy to look at. Uh, Peterson started games in both 20 and 21. Like McGill, Peterson's numbers in 21 featured a much lower XERA, 3.90, than an actual ERA, which is 5.54, but his BPV of 89 was lower than McGill's. You know, it's one of those interesting things. What, what do you do with Jacob DeGrom? I was in an auction last week with him, and he went for $22 uh, in a keeper league. So is that a good, uh, good buy or not? It might be good buy to $22, but on the other hand, it could really be a terrific buy if he has his health issues even partially sorted out. So what I'm thinking is, even if you build in the expectation over the next couple of years in a keeper league especially, that he's going to miss maybe, you know, 20 days. He's going to miss four starts a year, and you just build that into your calculation, and instead of getting 34 starts, you're getting 28 or 29 starts. For $22, I think that's probably going to work out pretty well in most situations, unless something really seriously is wrong with his arm. And heaven knows he's had so many sort of nagging type injuries and things that are pushing him back onto the DL and he gets back into action and looks great and then back on the IL because it's always something with him. And uh, I wonder, at $22, I think the risk might be worth the reward, but much higher than that, I don't know. Yeah, so you know it's one of those things that's hard to it's hard to hard to know. My guess is I've as I had Degrom on my team last year, and he probably even though he was only a half half the year helped win the league for me. But my guess, watching Jacob Degrom, is that that this is a a ball player who is very sensitive to his body. He knows when something is not right, uh, and he he doesn't push himself. So perhaps he's the kind of guy who's going to avoid a, a really serious injury uh, because he knows when something isn't working right. Uh, and, and gets help and, and gets attention right away. So that could be a positive thing. 
a lesson that's uh, sometimes not well learned by a lot of other players who uh, they're itching to get back in there. We understand that competitive urge that, that all professional athletes have, and even a lot of weekend warrior athletes have. You know, you can't wait to get back out there, even though your knee's feeling a bit bulky, and the next thing you know, you're in the hospital trying to figure out why you collapsed in the middle of the field for no apparent reason. Uh, I, I know lots of guys like that. I was that guy back when I was younger, and, and at the professional athletic level, of course, these guys push themselves because because I think even though they probably shouldn't in theory, I think the guys who are making the big money look at the the situation. They say, I owe it to the people who are paying me this. I owe it to the fans who are paying good money for these tickets and, and watching the games on TV. I really need to push myself to get out there. It's not that bad. And they convince themselves that something that actually is pretty bad isn't that bad. Yeah, I think that does happen lots of times. And maybe Jacob Duram is just not one of those guys who, he knows early when something could be wrong and, and gets uh, gets it checked. Moving along uh, in Milwaukee, they lost catcher Pedro Severino to an 80-game PED suspension. My wife told me about this, Nick, and he wasn't actually caught with PEDs. He was caught... Uh, having an unusual amount of female hormones in his system. And I guess the, the story is that the, the people who want to use steroids or performance-enhancing drugs take these female hormones to mask the effects by, uh, you know, sort of offsetting the added testosterone or testosterone-like uh, substances in their blood. But but the uh, the uh, people who test for PEDs are wise to this trick, so now they also check for, the, for these secondary things that might be used as masking agents. One way or another, uh, half a year gone for Pedro Severino, what are the Brewers going to do to fill space? Well, the Brewers did not uh, did not wait at all. They, they immediately got uh, Victor Caratini from the Padres. Um, he will be Milwaukee's backup catcher and potential platoon mate for starter Omar Narvaez, where while uh, Severino is sidelined. Caratini is a switch hitter, been uh, more productive, particularly in OBP leagues versus left-handed pitchers, uh, despite a lower contact rate against than in left against lefties than righties. That's kind of a strange, strange thing. Largely a ground ball hitter, low fly ball rate, low line drive rate, not likely to do much for fantasy teams. He never has been much to to do for fantasy teams. Uh, kind of a streaky hitter. You'll be glad you have him one week, and then you wonder, you know, where he disappeared to for the next couple. Uh, if you've got nothing better in a in a National League only league, then by all means, a second catcher he probably works. But otherwise, not a lot of excitement from Victor Caratini, I don't think. Uh, moving on to Washington, uh, Victor Robles has been a fan favorite, a fantasy players favorite as well for a long time, and uh, yet he's very seldom delivered and. And after a while, you start thinking, well, this guy's never going to be uh, amount to a great fantasy asset. But Washington seems to believe in him. And in playing time tomorrow, uh, Brent Hershey covered the National League East. And one of the players he mentioned was, guess who gets another shot in Washington but Victor Robles? Yeah, you know, it's one of those things. Uh, uh, poor showing last year in 2021. Eventually get, went back to AAA in September. But he's back roaming the center field and batting ninth as the Nationals camp closes out. And uh, by all indications, he'll be their starting, uh, their starting uh, center fielder. Uh, the, the hope for a spring training rejuvenation did not, did not really happen. Uh, through Monday of this final week, he had lost two singles and 18 at-bats, three strikeouts, two walks, no stolen bases. So that's certainly not what they were looking for. Uh, you've got to figure if that level of production continues, the team just could move on from him at some point in 2022, uh, either though through another demotion or just a seat on the bench. 
so if that happens, what are the what are they going to do? Uh, Rubber's replacement last season, late blooming Lane Thomas has had a very good spring. Eight for 30, one homer, one stolen base. He's penciled in right now as the starting left fielder, but would likely shift to center field as he did last year. Uh, Thomas is really the only roster player with center field experience. So if Robles can't hack it, uh, Thomas kind of move, moves into that spot. Uh, playing time winners if Robles sat would likely be either Yadiel Hernandez moving to left field or utility man D. Strange Gordon, uh, non-roster invitee, invitee who has filled in throughout March and seems likely to break camp with the club. Uh, Hernandez has really struggled in the spring, three for 17. Uh, Gordon has thrived, 15 for 32, four RBIs, a stolen base. Uh, if Gordon ends up playing, he's a guy to look at, uh, an older guy. But, uh, you know, I've had him on a fantasy team before, and he seems to deliver. Yeah, he's an interesting player to have. He's been around a long time, as you said. And at one time, he was a really valuable player because of the stolen bases, of course. That kind of stuff tends to sag with age, but I guess we'll see. You know, I've told this story before on Baseball HQ Radio, Nick, and it's interesting to me, analyzing my own thought patterns, that uh, I saw Victor Robles in the Arizona Fall League at First Pitch Arizona way long time ago when he was just coming up. And uh, he popped up to the infield in a game, and he kind of took about 12 steps towards first base and then just walked off the field. Before the ball had been caught, by the way. It was caught, and it was no big deal insofar as the actual outcome of the game was concerned. But boy, oh boy, was his manager mad. And that was the last we saw of Victor Robles, I believe, for the rest of that uh, season as far as the games uh, with his team were concerned. And that kind of thing sticks with you, and it may be unfair. He's you know, an 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid in, uh, in his first trip to, to the big, uh, big stage, as it were, in the United States, and, and uh, maybe a bit overwhelmed, and his reaction was to show that you know, it doesn't mean all that much to me. I'm a big star. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll walk out uh, or fail to run out ground balls or pop-ups if I want to, and he, maybe he's older now and wiser. I don't know. I don't know what to make of him, uh, really. It's possible. You know, it's one of those things that uh, you just have to wait and see what's going to happen. We know it takes prospects a while sometimes to come into their own. And certainly it's it's a good thing when uh, teams give them a second or third or fourth chance. Or fifth or sixth or seventh. Uh, <laughs> we'll wrap up. Uh, Dan Marcus covers the National League Central for playing time tomorrow, doing roster forecasting for all five teams. And he had a column recently talking about the potential for some early turnover at the first base position for a couple of teams, starting with the Chicago Cubs. Yeah, the, the Cubs seem pretty well set in the infield, except at first where Frank Swindell uh, was the league winner across the final two months of the season for some people is penciled in as a starter. However, as we noted in his baseball forecaster blurb and a recent fact flukes column written by Brandon Cruz, there's reason to be cautious with Swindell, red flags uh, all over the place, including the fact that he uh, lacked quality batted balls to support his results, and he was an age 30 breakout. So a significant pullback or collapse could easily occur, and the Cubs aren't likely to hesitate looking elsewhere at that position. An obvious option would be to shift Patrick Wisdom uh, from the opposite corner infield spot, uh, and depending on the team's plans in the outfield, Ian Happ could be an option to move back to the infield as well. Uh, no clear signs that anything like that's going to happen, uh, but you need to keep an eye on Swindell and see, I think, what what uh, might occur and whether he can produce as he did last year. Uh, if a new internal name is to enter the mix, uh, Alfonso Rivas is the likeliest candidate. He doesn't own the most exciting skills from a fantasy perspective. Uh, as noticed in a recent scouting report completed by Jeremy Deloney, but nevertheless, strong hit tool, adequate defensively. 
uh, given that he's racked up 261 plate appearances at AAA. Timing is right if the Cubs want to see if his battle play in the majors. I was in a slow draft earlier this year, and I came to that part of the draft where I was kind of nosing around for corner infielders, and Frank Schwindel was one of the guys who was available, and I I don't really remember the details of it, but I remember the more I looked at him, the less I like what I saw, Nick, so I went in another direction at that time, and frankly, I don't even remember who, but I was thinking when you were talking about the possibilities for Patrick Wisdom or Ian Happ, uh, either way, that's a lot of strikeouts between those two guys, isn't it? It is indeed a whole lot of strikeouts between those two guys. So, you know, that may not be something they want to do on a long-term basis. And with both of them in the lineup, goodness me, uh, that Patrick Wisdom, I think, set some kind of major league record last season, did he not, for uh, how often he struck out? It was 40-some percent for a full-time player along those lines? May, May have something like that, yeah. The other National League Central team that Dan Marcus looked at as far as first base was concerned is in Milwaukee, where they have a pretty solid lineup. But again, there seems to be some question marks at the first base position. Rowdy Talese is uh, the favorite to maintain regular at-bats at first base. Uh, spike in contact rate last season, 69% contact rate 2019, 82% in 2020. So that's uh, certainly a very nice growth, 78%. So he maintained that a bit in 2021. Uh, that pair of his consistent above-average power ability could result in a lot of production hitting in the middle of the Brewers' order. So uh, the problem is, despite some ability to hit left-handed pitching, 755 OPS, 112 P, uh, PX, Solis has struggled to get at-bats against southpaws throughout his career. So given the lack of depth in the infield, that could change in 2022. Uh, if not, the most obvious platoon partner is Keston Hyura, who has tinkered with mechanics enough to minimize his toe tap in an effort to reverse his downswing of the last two seasons. Uh, much has been made of his spring training line, which is 326, 378, 663. Uh, in addition to the usual gains, though, uh, grains of salt regarding uh, exhibition numbers, it's worth noting he struck out 10 times in 28 plate appearances in the spring. So when he's hitting the ball, he's getting some, some results, but uh, that's, as you said, a lot of strikeouts. Uh, the other noteworthy development of the position is that Hunter Renfro appeared at first base in a recent Cactus League game. He's appeared in only two games as a first baseman in his career, so it remains to be seen how comfortable the Brewers would be utilizing him there in meaningful games. Uh, but it would make sense if the team wants to get uh, Tyrone Ty- Taylor into the lineup occasionally. It's good to have options, I guess, if you're Milwaukee, but it's bad to have options if you're somebody looking at Milwaukee to solve a first base or corner infield position. I still like Rowdy Telez. You know, I've been following him since he was up here in Toronto, and of course he had a little trouble keeping himself in the lineup because of all the alternatives that they had while he was here, and then he moved down to Milwaukee, and I thought, well, here's a a glorious opportunity for him in that park and and with his skills and stuff like that. But yeah, his... uh, his struggles against left-handed pitching have been well-documented, but I think he's been making improvements in that area. And depending on when your draft is, if it happens to be this weekend, uh, don't be sleeping on Rowdy Telez as a corner infield guy or even a reserve round pick, depending on how your draft's going, because I, I think he could be uh, pretty productive. I agree. When you see an increase in contact rate like that from 69% in 2019 up to 82% in 2020, even in a shortened season, he maintained that at 78% last season. So, that's a good a good uh, uh, development, and if, if he's able to keep the contact rate at that point, uh, then he's certainly worthwhile keeping in the lineup. But, and it remains to be seen how he'll, how he'll develop against left-handed pitching. That's the thing to, to watch for. 
Yes, it's interesting when the contact rate goes up like that, especially for a guy who has good power. We see there are some players in the big leagues, uh, uh, you and I are both old enough to remember when sort of anything below 80% was kind of something to raise your eyebrows at. Now anything below 70% uh, seems to be where that threshold is. But Telez moving up toward the 80% mark and maintaining his power and not just being a slap hitter who's trying to put the ball into play, I think that is a really positive sign. Nick, you're right about that, and uh, we'll have to see how that works out well full opening day is today lots of teams getting into the action and of course first weekend lots of drafts taking place on the weekend uh have you done all your drafting for this year uh in the middle in the middle of a draft online trying to fill out uh, reserve spots on a roster so uh, that's proceeding and of course things are changing with the with the opening of games and people are making shifts i think based upon what they saw last night and as we head into the uh, into the first full opening day. Well, all right, Nick, I appreciate uh, you taking the time, and we'll catch up with you again with the National League News next week. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com columnist and co-general manager Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Good to be here, Patrick. Happy opening weekend. Yes, it's going to be terrific. It already has been pretty interesting. We had games on Thursday night. We'll have a full slate today, including your Boston Red Sox opening against New York. They were rained out yesterday, so is it look like it's going to go today? I think it is. Yeah, it's uh, kind of bleak up here in Boston today, but I think the New York weather is just better enough to get it in. Good enough. Uh, anyhow, let's start in Chicago in the American League. They pulled off what looks like a great deal for them, uh, sending some surplus value in closer Craig Kimbrell and his big contract to the Dodgers. Heaven knows the Dodgers are willing to pay big contracts. And they get back outfielder A.J. Pollock. Uh, Rick Green covering this story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Is this a great deal for the White Sox, or am I way off base here and about to get picked off? No, I think it's a good deal for the White Sox. Like you said, Kimbrel was a excess or a luxury item or a, you know, a want rather than a need, depending on how you want to characterize it, because they obviously had Hendricks locked in in the closer role. And, you know, they've got plenty of even setup men without Kimbrel. Uh, you know, Aaron Bummer, Kendall Graveman, that's a pretty good bullpen. Uh, Joe Kelly's going to be back soon. So, you know, Kimbrel was definitely uh, – you know, an extra sports car in the garage kind of thing. So uh, turning that into Pollock, who, you know, pretty quickly becomes their third starting outfielder and reduces the roles of Andrew Vaughn and Adam Engel and Gavin Sheets and probably even Lurie Garcia, uh, it's pretty clearly an upgrade for however many at-bats they got out of Pollock, right? Oh, definitely. He looked really good last year in L.A., uh, had a pretty good batting average, a really good batting average of 300. It's OBP 355. Those are good numbers. 21 homers, 69 RBI. The the knock on Pollock has always been injury risk, Ray. His team has played 708 games since 2017 and Pollock in just 483. So he's missed a third of the available games, a third of the available plate appearances, and a third of the opportunities to put up some numbers for his fantasy managers. How concerned should we be about uh, Pollock's injury past? For sure, that's the. I don't think he's actually hurt his Achilles before, but it's it's the Achilles heel of the of the situation, right? Uh, but but you know, we just rattled off the names of the guys that the White Sox have in reserve for when Pollock probably inevitably needs time. But on a on a per at bat basis, you know, he's super productive. So our you know we're hedging a little bit on our projection right now in terms of playing time. We've got him for 
65% playing time in the outfield, which comes out to a tick over 400 at bats, which, you know, which leaves some downtime in there built in. So if you can get him at a, you know, projected value, uh, you know, in an AL only league, we've got him in the, you know, the upper teens in value if you're drafting this weekend, that that leaves a little room for, um, you know, some built in time off that still have him return value for you. So when you guys are doing the projections and figuring out those playing time uh, numbers, are you looking at floors rather than ceilings for the most part? Yeah, I, I, I always skew to the side of I would rather leave room for the injury. And obviously, you know, Pollock's injury history is different than, uh, you know, some other people's. But I would rather leave a couple of percent of headroom for profit if he stays healthy, healthier than we think, rather than sitting here and, you know, plopping a 500, 550 at bat projection on Pollock at a level that, uh, you know, he hasn't reached in a number of years. That would be, you know, th- that to me would not be the ideal process. In fact, looking at Pollock's entire, you know, 10-year career here, uh, other than 2015 when he got 600 at bats, his, uh, his second highest career total for at bats is 443. So he's a, you know, you, you this, this picture kind of paints itself. You have to treat him as a, you know, if you treat him as a 350 to 450 at bat asset, you're much less likely to be disappointed. I paid 701 units out of my thousand fab in tout American league for Pollock. And I'll talk about that in my extra earnings commentary later in the pod. The question I have about it, the deal from Chicago's point of view is, you said that the bullpen still looks okay, and I wonder about that because they lost uh, Garrett Crochet, one left-hander, had Tommy John surgery, I think, just earlier this week, and uh, so he's gone till middle of next season. And I was I grabbed Bummer in tout, as a matter of fact, and then I started looking at him, which is always a bad plan. You should look and then <laughs> buy rather than buying and then look. But, boy, he's been death on left-handed hitters, but he's been really susceptible to getting hammered by right-handed hitters to the point where he almost looks borderline unplayable against right-handed hitters. Uh, Some of the stats, uh, 40% strikeout minus walk for left-handed hitters, 9% for right-handed hitters, including a 16% walk rate. And half of his hitters in 2021 in high leverage situations, right-handed hitters, half of them got on base. Uh, This doesn't look like a, a super solid bullpen as of yet. Do the White Sox have other options or the White Sox have to make other plans or more trades? What are they going to do? Yeah, there's probably more to come here. And they're going to handle this kind of the way everybody does and that they're going to exhaust their internal options and see in addition to the, you know, the sort of top tier of Hendricks, Graben and Bummer, if they get uh, like we also mentioned Joe Kelly earlier, who'll be back off the DL at some point. But I saw the Kyle Crick pitch yesterday, and they're they're going to take a look at him and you know some of the other kids in the back of the rotation, see, back of the bullpen, see if they get you know a pop up guy or somebody who rises, as happens in so many bullpens all year. And if not, sure they'll go to the market. Probably my bigger concern here is rather than the actual personnel in the bullpen, is how much is going to be asked of this bullpen because you think about. Uh, Michael Kopech, who you know spent a good chunk, if not all of last year, in the bullpen, now being asked to pick up a starter's workload, and there are going to be some innings limitations there. They've now lost Lance Lynn. I think we're you and I want to talk about the Johnny Cueto signing here, but you know Johnny Cueto looks like he might have to be an important part of this rotation because this is not the 
this is a high quality rotation, but it's not a high durability rotation. There are not a bunch of 200 inning guys here. So, you know, circling back to the topic of the bullpen, I think the concern I've got is how much work they're going to be asked to absorb over the course of the year and whether it's, as you say, sort of too much for the, uh, the assets they have on hand. Well, prior to the trade, Ray, the uh, you mentioned that they signed Johnny Cueto to compete for that last bullpen role, and I wonder what you think of the possibility that if you have Cueto competing with Vincent Velasquez, Ronaldo Lopez for the last slot in the Sox rotation, and eventually Lance Lynn comes back, so now all of a sudden there's even less room for those guys. Is there a possibility that somebody like Lopez or, or Velasquez or maybe even Kopech goes back into the bullpen once, uh, once the the White Sox get their uh, get Lance Lynn back and the rotation s- sort of settles in. Is there a chance that there's some bullpen help in guys who aren't going to be in the rotation after that? Yeah, I think there is, and I think it could be all of those guys on a rotating basis because, like we said, I, I'm not sure any of them can carry a starter's workload for six months. I think Lopez in particular has found a home in the bullpen, and if he's starting, I think it's because – something has gone wrong with the other people when his splits are much better in the bullpen and they would prefer him there. Uh, but uh, yeah, Velasquez is going to be, you know, sort of the the sponge on this staff for lack of a better word. They're going to, you know, put him in there to absorb innings probably when games aren't that close and Kopech. Yeah. He's probably going to get a vacation either in the bullpen or on the DL at some point, just because I can't imagine he's going to throw more than buck 20, 140 innings this year or something like that. Another pretty big, significant trade happened with uh, Minnesota and San Diego. Minnesota sends closer Taylor Rogers to San Diego, which helps the San Diego bullpen. And they get back Chris Paddock, uh, who seemed to wear out his welcome in San Diego after a pretty good start. What is the uh, outcome now for, especially in Minnesota? Yeah, the interesting, um, the interesting thing about that there's a couple of things looking at the rotation first and panics impact, you know, they've really rebooted the entire rotation now having brought in already Sonny Gray and Dylan Bundy. And, you know, they signed Chris Archer last week and now panic that's potentially 80% of a new rotation. Uh, You know, I was just fielding a question in the last hour in the HQ forums about uh, our projection for paddock more in terms of innings than performance, because we've only got him at, 90 something innings right now after the trade. And you would think that, you know, uh, your knee jerk reaction after they trade for him and pay Taylor Rogers for him might be that, you know, they're going to plug him into the rotation and leave him there. I'm, I'm not sure that's true. It may end up playing out that way, but for now we've got gray Bundy, Pat, uh, gray Bundy, gray and Bundy Ober and Joe Ryan as the top four starters and sort of Archer and Paddock as a, split of the fifth spot uh you will see with them each taking a little bit of time in the bullpen too now for sure any of those first four spots could open up or one of these guys could pitch better than the other and stake a claim to the fifth spot and then rather than paddock throwing 90 innings maybe he's you know on track for 140 but we're going to start with the 90 now and kind of see how it plays out because we've got some questions about uh you know what where he ranks in this rotation 
And when I look at the way they set things up, Ray, with uh, the four pitchers you mentioned, the new guys, plus Ober, plus Ryan. Ryan uh, is really well thought of uh, as a potential sort of mid-to-high rotation guy for the Twins. Could they be setting something up where they're going to go to a kind of a six-man rotation, extra days off here and there for everybody, not just for the young guys or not just for the injury-prone guys, but are they setting something up that works more flexibly with bigger breaks, weeks off, spend a week in the bullpen, throw a few innings, that kind of thing? You know, I think you and I have been expecting more teams to do stuff like that for a long time now, and some have come along with it. Um, but, I, I, you, but you're right. There there are options they have here in the, you know, in the, fir- I, in the first month with the extra pitcher with teams carrying 14 or 15 pitchers. I, I think sort of counterintuitively they don't have to be as creative because – they just have so many arms. There's always four or five guys in the arm barn who are, you know, set to go on a given day when they need to, when they don't need to worry about the 16 inning games anymore with the ghost runner. So it does set up some opportunities. You know, Paddock is somebody who's had some, you know, deeper into games, second and third time through the order problems. You know, I, I wonder if there's an Archer Paddock piggyback situation setting up here or if any of the other guys you know ryan and ober being younger and having innings limits if they're going to um do the same with them or use an archer or a paddock as a piggyback behind them even for a month at a time just to give them a quote-unquote breather month without actually taking them off the roster you know when we get into may with fewer off days and Back down to a back down to thirteen pitchers. I wonder if we'll see more of this. Yeah, I do too. I think there's a lot of ways that Minnesota can go, and uh, so far, at least, they've seemed to have become a little more adventuresome, or perhaps a little more analytical in how they approach not just this aspect of baseball, but a lot of them. They seem to be trying to offset their financial limitations by just being smarter, like some of the other teams in baseball. It'll be really interesting to watch and see what they do, and it'll have fantasy implications, of course, because if if you're counting on uh, even Gray or Bundy to come up with 140 innings, and they're you know limiting all of those guys' starts with the expectation maybe of being in the postseason then uh, there's possibilities that everybody's value goes down for fantasy players, but up for the Twins as an organization, and that's pretty interesting. Meanwhile, we had Taylor Rogers as the obvious closer, the seemed to me the obvious closer in, in Minnesota. Now all of a sudden we've got uh, Emilio Pagan came over in the trade. They also have Tyler Duffy, who's kind of been closer-worthy skills all along, uh, Jorge Alcala, and this rookie flamethrower, Joan Duran, lurking in the mix as well. What do you think is going to happen with the saves in Minnesota? And there could be quite a few of them. Yeah, you know, the, when you when you talk about the distribution of saves the way you do, with you know three guys having between twenty and thirty five percent of the saves allocation, and then the sort of rookie closer to the future, Duran, just sort of as you said, lurking for either maybe in a future season or maybe <clears throat> maybe in the second half, depending on how quickly he develops. I mean, you you, you put all of that together and it kind of sounds like a giant shrug emoji, right? <laughs> it's it's kind of what yeah. we're looking at. It's one of those things where we're going to get a, get a read on. And, and, the, and of course, the most important name not mentioned here is Rocco Baldelli, who has shown a willingness to be unconventional or to favor a committee in 
Minnesota already in his managerial career. Now it's a little bit interesting in that, you know, he lost his lefty Rogers. So there's not a, you know, between the three guys we're talking about with Pagan, Duffy and Alcala, there's not a heck of a lot of clarity in terms of why you would use this guy in terms of this matchup and not that guy. But there are opportunities for Baldelli for sure to, not use guys on consecutive days if he wants to avoid that. So I'm expecting everybody to overreact to who gets the first save. And then by the time we're three weeks in, probably three or four guys are going to have at least one and we're not going to know anything again. Yeah, that's, that's the way it sometimes goes. I wonder if they're headed for a Tampa Bay, like 12 guys get a save a piece kind of situation. But in the past, sometimes, especially if the, if the race stays tight and the manager has other things to worry about than explaining every single game, why he went to a particular guy and not the quote closer finds it a little easier to just have a closer and, and go ahead with it, especially when there's not a big lefty righty advantage, as you point out, this is, this has the makings of a really interesting situation for the twins. And of course, the other thing we're not talking about here is, you know, which one of these guys actually goes out and pitches well and gets two saves in a row. And then, like you said, Baldelli wants to avoid questions. If he goes to you know, pick a pick a name, pick Duffy for the first two saves that he closes them. If he doesn't go to Duffy the third time, there are going to be questions as to why, right? So, um, you know, the, 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 at some point, it, you know, there's also a meritocracy element to it too, that somebody who, you know, the, the door is open right now, but one of these guys could grab the job and run with it. Doubly so if Duffy gets a couple of the saves early and then they don't use him and whoever goes in blows the save. Now now Baldelli's got twice as much hassle from the media trying to explain why he did what he did. Even if it does make sense, sometimes it doesn't work. And But, you know, the media, they don't care about that kind of stuff. That notedly grumpy Minneapolis media, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Uh, let's move on to uh, Detroit. The Tigers made a fairly significant deal acquiring Tampa outfielder Austin Meadows and sending back uh, basically a utility man, Isaac Paredes, to Tampa. Tom Kephart for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Uh, I'm going to assume Meadows fits right into the Detroit outfield. Yeah, they had, you know, injury and circumstance had cleared a couple of spots there. You know, this is one of those things that I assume without a lockout would have gotten done earlier in the winter or at the very least early in camp. But, you know, as as, as it was with everything compressed, it, you know, it took until the last week of camp for this to get done. But then Riley Green broke his foot. Victor Reyes and Eric Hasse were looking like the initial beneficiaries of that. But, you know, forget that. Now what we're going to do is we're going to put Akil Badu back in center field, and that frees up left field for Meadows. Uh, the thing about Meadows that was really interesting was there was a tweet that I, um, I'm i going to fail to attribute correctly. Um, it might have been Jason Collette, but I think that it might not have been him. Maybe I just associate him with everything raised. But he pointed out that there are virtually no left-handed starters in the AL Central. And there are quite a few in the AL East. So it's kind of a playing time boon for Meadows. Uh, there's sort of the shadow of Green, Green's return a few months out lurking and what happens in the Detroit outfield then. But until then, it's going to be all Meadows almost all the time, which is, um, which is good news for him in terms of value because, you know, as we know, Tampa will play the team pretzel thing, and he was probably a four to five days a week guy in Tampa because of lefties and because of the Rays' uh, emphasis on playing platoons. But he's going to be, uh, you know, uh, more more like a six day a week guy in Detroit. 
When I first heard this news, I thought Detroit won the deal hands down. Austin Meadows, a fairly big name. Isaac Paredes, clearly not quite a, the same reputation. But I'm not so sure because it, it looks to me like what Tampa's doing is following this plan that they've had underway for a while now, which is to have a lot of guys who can play a lot of different positions, to emphasize defensive ability, which was certainly a knock against Austin Meadows, who's a f- quite poor defensively in the outfield, uh, probably more of a DH. But they're gonna, Detroit's going to play him in the outfield field, which maybe augurs not so well for their flyball pitchers, especially in that big park. I wonder if secretly Tampa has actually swindled the uh, Tigers uh, yet again by just being smarter than everybody else, and, and apparently they're going to be grooming Paredes, who's just been an infielder for his major league career anyway, but they're giving him some reps in the minor leagues for now in the outfield, maybe making a super utility guy out of him and, and just adding another one of those kinds of guys to their lineup just like we try to do in our drafting holds. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I, I like the deal from Detroit's perspective, but you know, it's not hard to see what Tampa's doing either. They had Meadows, who was making $7 million, and figured that Josh Lowe is ready to be at least equally productive. As you said, kind of feeds the athleticism and multi-position track. So they replaced the $7 million guy with the guy making the minimum salary with no loss of productivity pocketed a free Isaac Paredes, who's another, you know, another cog in their machine. And, you know, there's no shortage of depth there. They just keep accumulating depth. And when got, you know, it's not to accuse them of being cheap, but they, this was money that was in a, being inefficiently spent because they could spend $7 million on Meadows or save the money and, you know, use the in-house option that was cheaper. So of course they're going to use the in-house option. that was cheaper. It's, it's as ruthless as it is effective. Yes, it's both. And for a team like Tampa and lots of teams in similar financial situations, it's really the only way they can compete. And I think, as I said earlier, or as I implied earlier, I think there are lessons here for people who are building fantasy rosters. There's an, a lot of opportunity sometimes, especially in deeper leagues, you know, 18 mixed or 2014 mixed or, or only leagues, certainly, where you can look at a guy who seems to be underpriced and actually is quite a value because if you get an injury, you can slot guys around and move guys around and put them into places without having to go into a depleted free agent pool and try to make up the difference there where it's really difficult to accomplish. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's, uh, you know, the, the, the Rays do not suffer the affliction of being attached to their own assets or, and, you know, to, to use another uh, sports axiom that you hear, they're, they're entirely willing to get out from under a player a year too early rather than a year too late, right? Yeah, that's the way I saw it as well. Austin Meadows, the other thing that uh, was mentioned in the Baseball HQ analysis is most of his power metrics in particular are trending in the wrong direction. So if as he ages, he's not getting better, he's actually declining somewhat. Yeah, and that's what I mean. If the Rays plan because of what you say about Meadows' production was to throw him into their uh, team pretzel hopper and maybe he, you know, because of his limitations, maybe he was only going to be a part-timer this year and get 350, 350 at-bats and, you know, look like a declining asset, then the Rays were, if the Rays kept him, they were only going to get less for him in a year, right? Or I think more to the point, he might have even been a free agent at the end of the year. So they got something for him while they still could. 
always a, a smart way of doing it. Before we leave this, uh, you mentioned Josh Lowe. What about Vidal Bruhan? Is this a, a boon for him? I, I think he moves one step up the pecking order. You know, like you said, Tampa likes to groom everybody to be able to play multiple positions. They they don't even necessarily need to do that with Bruhan because Brandon Lau, Brandon Lau could also go to the outfield if they needed to. So either Bruhan or Lau could become an outfielder and the other one could go to second base. So I think, you know, there's one more obstacle removed from Bruhan. I, but, you know, Bruhan got a you know quick look last year, but he's quickly getting to the point where even by Tampa's super patient with prospect standards, he's got very little left to prove in the minors. So if we get to May or June, you you really have to think that they're going to create a place for him somehow because you get to the point where it's actually a um, he actually becomes a declining asset if you uh, if, if you keep keep him rotting in the minors. And as we just discussed, the Rays are trying not to have their assets decline on them. In Detroit, uh, also, Michael Pineda turns out is going to start the year in AAA. Visa issues there. Do we expect uh, him to be down for a couple of starts and work his way quickly back, or is this something that has a little longer run to it? I don't think it's too long. It's too long. It's probably you know a, a two to three start deal. But of course, you know I think one of the reasons they're sending him down is because you know you, you could just sort of with these 14, 15 man bullpens it would not have been that big a deal to give Pineda short starts for two or three turns in the majors, let him sort of stretch out in the majors. But I think that probably means that he wasn't even ready to do that or the Rays are concerned enough that they want him to be able to, you know, work on specific things and more of a, uh, you know, more of a practice environment rather than doing it on a big league bound and have him, you know, risk overexerting himself and pulling something. So I, I, I think it's a statement about how far behind he is that they, you know, that they couldn't even fit him onto a 14, 15 man staff. So uh, sometime, I would think before the end of April, but maybe not much before the end of April. Also in Detroit, we're staying in uh, Motor City for quite a while here, but there's a lot of news here, including the two Spencers. Uh, Spencer Torkelson, one of the top prospects, makes the opening day roster. Spencer Turnbull, however, goes to the 60-day DL. Uh, what's the news about uh, both of those, and how does it affect uh, fantasy managers? Torkelson's you know, going to get a long look now. You know, it was either... It was going to be him, Green, or both to start the year. Obviously, Green got hurt, so Torkelson, you know, becomes the spotlighted rookie there, and they're going to give him a very long look. They've got options between Scope and Cabrera if they want to sit him down for a day, if he looks like he needs that. But he's going to really have to play himself out of a job to, you know, to, to get into a worse situation than that. I think he's up for good. And as for Turnbull, we'll see when he works his way back. It's uh, you know, it's been a long haul for him, and you know we're not expecting much from him, even into, uh, you know, it was July Tommy John surgery. So, you, you know, at the 13, 14 month rehab schedule, if we see even a token return from him to the majors in twenty three, I think in, in twenty two, that's uh, that's pretty good news, I think. Dynasty managers might be a little more interested than single year uh, redraft guys, as far as Torkelson. Uh, I'm sorry, as far as uh, Turnbull's concerned. 
In Oakland, they, they continued the sell-off. This is a bit of an older news, but we haven't talked about it before, so we'll talk about it now. Sean Manaya out the door to San Diego, which seems to be becoming Oakland's favorite trading partner. What's next for Oakland as far as their starting rotation is concerned? Open tryouts? Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, loosen up, Ray. You still have a chance. Yeah, I, I, you know, my, my, my shoulder was bugging me for a good part of the offseason, but it feels great now, so I, I, I may have to go out there. Uh, but, you know, honestly, the next piece of news here is probably Frankie Montas disappearing too. Uh, we're not going to anticipate that just yet, but I, I don't think anyone's going to be surprised when that happens. So Cole Irvin, Dalton Jeffries, Paul Blackburn, Adam Oler, you know, James Caprillion is hurt, but we at least know him from last year, and he was pretty good. So we'll see some more of him. AJ Puck's role is still kind of up in the air. You know, maybe we'll see a little bit of starting, a little bit of relieving. Uh, but it's, you know, and there may be more names to insert here. There's, uh, It's going to be a revolving door probably for the entire summer. In Cleveland, outfielder Josh Naylor will miss the start of the season. He's still recovering from that ghastly uh, ankle injury he suffered last year, I believe. And uh, how long are we looking at waiting for Josh Naylor as far as uh, HQ's playing time projections go? Yeah, there. Um, some of that probably depends on position and some of the other guys they're looking at. I, I think the, it looked like in spring training that Naylor was ready from a hitting perspective, but the you know playing the outfield may have been a bit of a stretch, and you know they were working with him at, at first base some too. Uh, and I think maybe once he's sort of got both of those positions under a little bit more control. We'll see him. Obviously, the bad news for him is, you know, with Fran Mil Reyes on hand in Cleveland, DH is kind of clogged up. So he's got to wear a glove somewhere. Uh, and and uh, some of this is going to be just about giving Bobby Bradley the first opportunity in, at first base and evaluating the various outfielders that are running out there. I mean, yesterday at opening day, it was the immortal Ahmed Rosario, Miles Straw, Oscar Mercado outfield. So, and, you know, Stephen Kwan got a lot of buzz this spring. He's going to get some work too. Uh, but, you know, Naylor's bat projects to be helpful in this lineup, and this lineup needs Naylor's bat once he demonstrates that he's ready and can handle something defensively. So, you know, again, probably by the end of the month he's back, I would I would imagine. Well, as they say, from your lips to God's ear, he's one of the guys I took a chance on in my tout American League draft. Uh, along with a couple of other guys that I'm interested in, and one of them being Julio Rodriguez in Seattle. He made the team. Bobby Witt made the team in Kansas City. That wasn't so much of a surprise. Torkelson, we talked about, made the team. The new CBA, Ray, contained some efforts to curtail all the service time shenanigans that teams were doing with these guys and to try to get the top prospects into the game sooner. How confident do you think we should be, based on this fairly skimpy evidence, that the continued willingness of teams to promote their young talent will continue. You know, it's going to be interesting to watch. And I, you know, there was sort of a, I, you know, I don't want to say it's a media victory lap, but there's a victory lap in some circles saying like, Hey, you see these new contingencies in the CBA, they work, blah, blah, blah. Um, maybe they work. I, I think the jury's still a little bit out. Um, you know, for every, you know, for all your Julio Rodriguez and Bobby Witt, and Matt Brash excitement, uh, you know, we still got O'Neill Cruz sent down. So, you know, it's not like every kid who looked like they were ready is up. But, you know, the thing that I'm going to be mindful of as the season goes on is I think some of the reason that these guys got the early call is because of this clause about, you know, the 
whoever finishes in the top two of the rookie of the year voting gets a full year of service time, no matter how much they played, right? So what happens if Witt or Rodriguez or Brash or whoever, you know, gets off to the start that Jared Kalenic got off to last year? And after a month, or Torkelson, we can throw out this conversation too. After a month, they're not looking good. Then if they're sort of out of the running for those two rookie of the year spots, doesn't the old calculus come back into play? And the team's going to be like, well, you know, if I put it back in the minors for three weeks, I get a whole other year out of it. You know, are we going to see all these guys? We're all fired up because they're starting on opening day, but are we going to see them get, get set down on June 1st if they're just because they're, you know, having a pedestrian rookie season and not lighting the world on fire? I, you know, I don't know. There's more, there, there's more to play out here. I mean, the initial returns are good, but, as always on opening day, let's remember they're just initial returns. Yeah, that's well said. It's going to be an interesting thing to watch, and it's going to have ramifications as we understand it better. I think it's going to start to have real ramifications for the value of these young top prospects in uh, in their auctions and in uh, in drafts as far as how high you have to pick, how much you have to pay kind of things. And right now, as you said, I still think we're really up in the air on that and probably will be for a year or two because we're going to have to get more than the three or four guys who seem to be obviously affected at uh, at every turn. Now, a couple of new wrinkles at BaseballHQ.com, Ray, before we go. First, you and Brent Hershey did an opening day general manager's diary. How did that come about? Uh, We've been doing this for four or five years now, and basically it started out as a you know, after working all season and getting all winter and getting through draft season and pumping out all the content on the site and our own drafts and all that stuff, we wanted to, you know, sit back and, you know, sort of both said, what if we, you know, how do we figure out a way we can take the day off and just watch baseball all day? So, of course, the way to do that is to turn it into a content producing exercise. So we, uh, you know, we tapped, uh, you know, the format of, uh, the likes of Bill Simmons and others and you know, went to the running diary format and just opened up a chat window and clicked around all day, made ourselves a little bit of a schedule so that we saw one of, one of us got eyes on every team who was playing and, you know, just kind of dropped observations and, you know, witty repartee in the, uh, in the chat window all afternoon and evening. And, uh, you know, at the end of the night, I cut and pasted it into an article, dropped it on the site and said, Hey, job well done, Brent. <laughs> it's always good when you can figure out a way to do content without actually making anybody uh, do actual work. That's great. And we're going to do it again today because we only saw, you know, 14 teams yesterday. So we're going to dial it up and uh, check in on the other 16 today. It should be fun. Can I join? Sure. Send me the link and I'll, I'll, I'm going to be watching so I can throw in a few, uh, not much in the way of an analysis, but I can give you some Woody repartee at the very, at the very <laughs> least. Believe me, I know you can. Uh, the other new feature I wanted to talk about is uh, a new feature called Lineup Outlooks by Greg Jewett. How does that work and uh, wh- where did you get to Greg? Yeah, so Greg, you might know from, uh, you, know, you met him in uh, First Pitch Arizona last year. Uh, you might know his work from the athletic where he's the bullpens uh, fantasy analyst there. And he also runs the, uh, the very, very good uh, reliever recon Patreon site. So, uh, you know, we been acquainted with him and wanted to get him to do some work with us. And of course he can't do bullpens uh, for us for two reasons. One, he does it everywhere else in the world. And two, we have Doug Dennis. So, uh, you know, we needed to find a sort of a different niche for him. And one of the things that's kind of been in, uh, you know, we're rattling around the back of Brent Brent's brain for a while is the idea of 
lineup position analysis and, you know, who's gaining and losing there. You know, what are we seeing as far as, uh, you know, players who are, you know, moving into better or worse lineup positions? What does it mean for their fantasy value, et cetera? Uh, so we t- kind of asked Greg if he was interested in tackling that. And it, he was super excited about it and gave us a nice initial piece today where, you know, he kind of, you know, introduces the concept and talks about, you know, Trey, Trey Turner's position in LA and how the Red Sox look like they're going to use Trevor Story and Jazz Chisholm in Miami and how he's been moved, uh, you know, a little bit down to bottom of the order and what that might mean for his uh, counting stats and stealing ability this year. So uh, Greg's going to keep his eye on that space for us uh, with a weekly feature all year long. And I think it's a, uh, a good addition to our offerings. I thought so too uh, when I first looked at it, because uh, the analysis was interesting in the from the point of view of uh, what Greg did at one point was he said, "Here's what the average production was out of this lineup slot in this for this team," and then prorated it into the the actual individual player. And it's really significant how many plate appearances are lost dropping down from the say the fifth spot to the seventh spot, or especially in Story's case, I think it was second to fifth or sixth in the Boston lineup, depending on the handedness of the pitcher. That's a real, it's a really significant thing to have to think about. And it's something that's probably going to give a lot of Baseball HQ subscribers uh, a solid edge in drafts this weekend if they understand where these guys are hitting and what the impact of hitting higher or lower in the lineup really is. Exactly. And, you know, we're going to, it is kind of late in draft season. So, you know, certainly people can put that into practice this weekend and, but Greg will keep an eye on this all season long. It'll help people with lineup decisions and maybe trade decisions. And then, you know, it's going to provide us with, you know, a uh, analysis, you know, I haven't thought far enough ahead to think about how we'll look at this next off season, but, you know, one of the things we'll need to do at some point is to take this and, you know, better integrate it into, our projections so that we're capturing this, you know, as things change and, you know, trying to get a, you know, scrape a couple more percent of precision out of our projection system. And for that matter, I've always thought it would be good in the projections presentations, whether through the custom draft guides or just the regular projections that get published. If there was a column that said batting order position, and I know sometimes yes. that's difficult because guys move around in the batting order, but you know, if you figured that a guy was going to bat sixth for 70% of the season, you put him down as a six or a six plus or something and, and just give people a, a at a glance idea that uh, the guy batting sixth and uh, as a tiebreaker, I got a guy batting fifth and gosh, you know, 40 plate appearances or whatever it is, that could be consequential. And I'd like to know. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's actually a conversation in, in the course of talking to Greg about this, I was also having this conversation with our tech team too, because we have that data because we have the daily lineups of collecting every, every day, all season on the website. So it's like, well, why can't we collect the, like you said, the average lineup position and throw it into a field on player link or something that gets into the projections. You know, I'm not so sure how, you know, that may not carry over all that well from year to year. It might not be something you can use in the off season, but it might be a handy thing to have in season. So that's uh you know, I've got a pretty long wish list here, but that definitely got added to it the last week or two. Yeah, it seems as an analytical tool, it would be really quite helpful too. When a guy moves teams, you could look and say, you know, he was hitting fourth on this team, but on this team he might drop down to seventh because it's a better team. Anybody moving to Toronto, for for instance, probably had to, the, at least some risk of dropping down the batting order because the 
batting order is really full of good hitters, and that might and the opposite might be true of somebody moving to a team who lost their third or fourth place hitter in some other trade or free agency. And you could say, you know, this guy has a chance to step in and and hit fourth in that lineup, and all of a sudden you have to be more interested because he's been a kind of a sixth place, seventy five RBI guy for most of his tenure in the big leagues. That's exactly right. And, you know, the other thing, you know, bringing this full circle back to Greg's article that, you know, was striking to me is he, just by coincidence, you know, we, we all, we sort of know the penalty, you know, intuitively know the penalty for moving down a position in the lineup. But he, he also has a nice, um, did us a, a nice juxtaposition because he ran the Red Sox six place hitters in the story piece and he ran the, the Marlins six place hitters in the Chisholm piece. And it really just underscores how much being in a good lineup and a crappy lineup matters, right? <laughs> the, the difference between the Red Sox six hitter and the Marlins six hitter was, you know, was pretty substantial, not, you know, with an extra 15 or 20 at bats, plus a, a good bit more counting stats. So, you know, team context is the other, um, the other variable here. There are no, there are no short shortages of, variables that are sliding around but it's like a red Sox six hitter is actually probably equal to a marlins five hitter or even cleanup hitter you know and you know seeing seeing that all spelled out was kind of kind of got some gears turning in my head too i thought so too and what was really interesting about that particular comparison i noticed that the runs scored in the sixth slot were about the same between the two uh clubs Miami and Boston around 90 apiece but the RBIs in Miami were like down by 30 or so it was really uh, confounding to me because I would have thought the uh, the opposite might be true that if you're a six hitter in Boston your seven eight hitters are probably pretty good and gonna uh, push you around and score uh, score some runs but it turned out that the run scored didn't matter for the slot what mattered was the RBIs and I guess that's a function of the on-base percentage of guys ahead of them or something I don't know but yeah it, I, I, that, that was exactly what my thought was that's the difference between the uh you know, the on-base percentage of Rafael Devers and J.D. Martinez versus, you know, Jesus Aguiar and Garrett Cooper or whoever the four or five guys were in front of the sixth spot in, in, in Miami, right? Yeah, and that's something, again, that as it becomes increasingly difficult in fantasy baseball to find that kind of an analytical edge or that opportunistic edge, this is the kind of thing we're going to find ourselves, if we want to be successful, really paying more and more close attention to because it's going to matter. And it seems to me, Bray, I don't play DFS, but you do. It seems to have ramifications for that as well. Yeah, and, you know, this might be uh, a learning opportunity for me being a DFS either, I don't know, use your adjective however you want, amateur or fish or you know, <laughs> dead money, dead <laughs> money, donator. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but the, you know, the, the, the DFS community, I you know, when, when you read analysis on DFS sites, they are super in tune with lineup position and to, to, you know, to the point where I thought it was a little excessive. And just looking at these numbers, I'm like, oh, maybe these guys actually know what they're talking about. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's I, why that guy has thousands of dollars, and I'm yeah, missing thousands of dollars. <laughs> this is why I have $2 million less than Dave Potts, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, at least, yeah. Uh, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, Dave's one of those guys, I bet you if you talk to him about it, and I, I've talked to him about lots of stuff but not that, I bet you that's something that just gets built into his regular yeah. 
observations totally. of what's going on in the day's lineup for sure. Well, Ray, thanks a million. I knew this was going to be fun. I'm glad to be back in the saddle here and doing some baseball and talking baseball with you and Nick and all the other guys. And we'll catch up with you again next week, I'm sure. And maybe even uh, maybe even today in the in this chat deal that we've got going on. Definitely. About 20, 26 more of these to go. Can't wait. All right. <laughs> thanks, Ray. Take care. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Next up, our regular commentaries, the frequent flyer, and extra innings coming up. But right now, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Facts and Flukes Performance Validation, analyst Greg Pyron looks at five national leaguers, including Sean Manaya, Alex Colomay, and David Peralta. In Playing Time Tomorrow roster forecasting, analyst Jock Thompson, hey, we remember him. He looks at the five teams in the American League West, including the Seattle bullpen and the rotations in Los Angeles and Texas. And in scouting, analyst Chris Blessing assesses the prospects who moved during April's trading frenzy so far. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starting pitchers and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column, The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, we have tools like the player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential sergers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. There's expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Detroit right-handed reliever Alex Lang is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Going back, way back, all the way back to Baseball HQ's 2017 draft preview published on June 5th of that year, Baseball HQ's Rob Gordon had this to say. One wild card will be LSU right-handed pitcher Alex Lang. Lang dominated as a freshman, Rob continued, but has struggled with consistency and fastball command ever since. Despite these concerns, Lang could be a steal if he slides to the bottom half of round one. Perhaps the Chicago Cubs, who drafted Lang with the 30th overall pick in the first round of the 2017 draft, got that steal as Rob predicted. After all, Alex Lang was one of two pitchers, along with Paul Richard, were traded to the Detroit Tigers in the 2019 trade deadline deal that netted Nick Castellanos for the Cubs. Not bad. Now fast-forwarding to almost exactly one year ago today, April 10th, 2021 to be exact, Lang made his Major League debut, her like one inning of scoreless relief against Cleveland. However, as our own Rob Gordon previously pointed out in 2017, Lang has continued to struggle with consistency and fastball command ever since. More specifically, Lang posted a command ratio of 2.4 strikeouts to walks in 2021, 
far below our recommended three strikeouts to walks benchmark for baseball's best pitchers, according to the tools and analytics available to you at BaseballHQ.com. In other words, he still is a wild card. That's why 26-year-old Detroit Tigers righty reliever Alex Lang, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, or at least a wild card, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. But sometimes, as we know, long shots do pay off, and as continually proven by the playoffs, being a wild card isn't always a bad thing. Nevertheless, in the April 11th, 2021 edition of Call-Ups on Baseball HQ, about a year ago, our own Jeremy Deloney referenced the Cubs-Tigers 2019 trade and said that Lang's stock has risen considerably since. Jeremy mentioned that Lang is a significant sleeper with dramatically increased velocity and the implementation of two effective breaking balls. As you can see, there is clearly some progression here beyond Alex Lang's high-octane fastball. Plus, here's something else to consider. In discussing the origin of closers in Baseball HQ's 2022 Baseball Forecaster, page 42, history has long maintained that ace closers are not easily recognizable early on. For example, Dylan Floro, Paul Sewald, Greg Soto, Lou Trevino, who would have thought it a year ago? Quote, unquote. So you never know, maybe 26-year-old Detroit Tigers reliever Alex Lang will join Baseball HQ's 2023 Surprise Closers list. But for now, he's our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about why I spent 70% of my fab in the first week on one player. On Wednesday of this week, I made a bit of a Twitter splash by successfully bidding 701 out of my 1,000 free agent acquisition budget units to get A.J. Pollock, who was traded into the American League from the National and became the prize catch in my American League-only Tout Wars League. 701 out of 1,000 sounds like quite a lot, but it was nothing if not an efficient bid. I beat runner-up Larry Schechter by just 31 units. He bid 670. Two more bidders were inside 100 units of difference, Jeff Erickson at 631 and Rob Lebowitz at 607. Sniping Rob was a bit of revenge for him sniping me a few years back on Jordan Alvarez, which won him the league that year and would have won me the league if I'd won that bidding. The other bids in declining order were 512 by Doug Dennis, 352 by Ryan Bloomfield, and 346 by Chris Blessing, all baseball HQers. Then 336 by Jason Collette, 288 by the Rick Wolf Glenn Colton team, 277 by Mike Podhorzer, 118 by Howard Bender, and 65 by a very optimistic Joe Sheehan. So, why did I spend 70% of my fab on day one of bidding? The simple answer is, I thought 700 units was a reasonable price for A.J. Pollock under the circumstances. Now, if you don't play many or any deep leagues, American League only, National League only, or 24-team mixed, you might not agree with me and you'd probably be right for your context. But in very deep leagues, the free agent pools are as barren as the Gobi Desert for hitters. At the time I was making my bid, I had downloaded the full list of the league's available hitters and run them through the Baseball HQ Custom Draft Guide values. 
There were about 120 hitters on the list, which sounds like a lot, but about 30 of them were already on the IL. Another 30 or so were non-roster invitees with as much chance of making a roster as I had, and 15 or so were just those unrosterable third and fourth catchers that hang around at the end. Of the remaining 50 or so, only 7 projected to actually provide above zero value. Pollock was worth 15 roto dollars by HQ's assessment, Raymond Tapia was worth 9, and a few other guys a dollar or two. The main reason not to spend fab early is to keep your bidding units for later, when you might need to replace an injured guy, or maybe have the hammer when a cross-league trade drops a superstar into your league. But over my years in this and other deep-only leagues, I've learned that holding on to units so I can bid on replacements for my stars is absurd. There are no replacement for your stars. Most roster moves are small bids for barely above replacement players where you're hoping to get maybe two or three plate appearances a week just to keep going. There's a bit of competition for next guy potential closers who turn up and some high-performing prospect call-ups. But I still have 300 units for those handful of competitive situations, and Tout allows zero-unit bids for the week-in, week-out churn of pitchers and marginal players. I've also learned that it can be really hard to keep the bidding hammer all year all the way until the trading deadline, and even if you do, there's no guarantee that a star is going to cross over. I had the hammer once in this league, I think in 2016, and at the deadline, the big prize was Jonathan Lucroy. All right, he was a catcher and a pretty good hitter. He came to Texas from Milwaukee, and he provided good numbers. They prorated to 34 home runs and 114 RBIs in a full season. But here's the trick. I didn't get him for a full season. I got him at the deadline. In July, I got 47 games, which translated to 11 home runs and 31 RBIs. Not nothing, but hardly the same as a full year's worth. So that's my advantage. I got Pollock in what amounts to a July deadline trade. It just happened in April. I'll get Pollock for a full season, or probably two-thirds of a full season given his injury history. But if he just repeats last year, that's 20 home runs, 10 bags, 200 runs plus RBIs, and a 350-ish on-base percentage in 450 plate appearances. And if by some miracle he stays healthy, there's some upside. Pollock's going to take the spot of injured Guardians outfielder Josh Naylor on my roster for now, and when Naylor comes back, I'll have a couple of options for drops, like Chad Pinder and Tyler Wade, or maybe I'll end up with a tradable asset if all of those guys are playing. Now, I understand this could easily blow up in my face. Ray and I discussed Pollock's injury history earlier. I looked into it a bit more. He played 157 games in 2017 with the Diamondbacks, but he hasn't got over 117 games in a season since. He has three seasons in his career, 2012, 14, and 16, where he totaled 118 games. And he's 33 years old now. But the White Sox have a very good reputation for keeping their players on the field, but I know it's a risk. It just feels like a risk that was worth taking. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt. I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 8th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 13 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick David, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums 
And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Google Pods, Apple Pods, Pocket Cast, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with a Friday full edition. Everything we had this week, plus an expert interview. That's coming up next Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk to you next Friday. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.